One of the most influential paintings of all time was Michelangelo's The Last Judgment. It covers the wall behind the altar at the Vatican Sistine Chapel. This painting took Michelangelo six years to complete. When it was unveiled, it caused all of Europe to tremble. The painting pictures Jesus judging the wicked and sending them off into damnation. Some of the painting's elements are unbiblical, but its impact was undeniable. For this masterpiece, when it was unveiled, it sent a shockwave all across Europe. The masterpiece ingrained God's judgment in the hearts and minds of Europeans. It literally convicted the conscience of a continent. Well, tonight we also come to a picture of God's judgment. We'll observe the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. And it should also shake us up. It should send a shockwave over you and me. For like the people of old, God's people, you and I have also been chosen by Him and blessed by Him. And yet we need to know that God's blessing doesn't immunize us from God's judgment. God is rich in mercy. God is generous in grace. God is plentiful in patience. But when His people persist in their sin, God has no other choice but to judge the wicked. For 200 years, God was patient with the northern kingdom of Israel in hopes that they would repent. Nineteen kings ruled over Israel, and yet tragically, each one of those 19 kings led the people into idolatry. Repentance never occurred. God's judgment was inevitable. And tonight we're going to witness the decline, the final years, and the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. Before we dive in, though, let's get the global picture. The date was 790 B.C., and a great kingdom, a military juggernaut, was growing northeast of Israel on the Euphrates River. The Assyrian Empire was on the rise, and their spread preoccupied Israel's northern adversary, the Syrians. This afforded Israel a final period of prosperity, enjoyed by King Joash, by his successor, King Jeroboam II, this was sort of a final reprieve. It was the calm before the storm. One last period of God's blessing before God's judgment. And during this time, God sent a wave of prophets to warn Israel of this coming judgment. We'll read later the book of Joel, and the book of Jonah, and the book of Hosea, and the book of Amos. This flurry of prophetic activity was God's final call to Israel. After the death of Jeroboam II, the northern kingdom was plunged into a 30-year period of chaos and confusion, which ends with their conquest, the infamous date, 722 B.C. The instability of the north was framed by the stability enjoyed in the south. For the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, was a man named Azariah, or we call him Uzziah, he reigned for 52 years. So while this one king, Azariah, is sitting on the throne in Judah, Israel to the north experiences a run of six different kings. The instability weakened Israel, and it made her easy prey for the Assyrians. Well, chapter 15 gets us up to speed. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. As I mentioned, this king was more commonly known as Uzziah. In verse 13, in fact, it refers to him as Uzziah. Azariah, or Uzziah, was one of Judah's eight good kings. There were about 20 kings that reigned over Judah. Eight of them were good. Nineteen kings reigned over Israel. None of them were good. They were all wicked kings. Well, this man was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And of course, today is Mother's Day, and so it's fitting that his mother gets mentioned in our text. Jechaliah. I'm sure we have every good king. There is a mom who taught him God's ways, who trained him to rule wisely. Notice Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. 
Imagine getting your driver's license and taking the throne the very same year. I do know this. When a 16-year-old gets his driver's license, he feels like he's king of the road. That's for sure. Well, 792 B.C. was a big year for Uzziah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done, except that the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And this was not the only mistake that King Uzziah made. 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 16 tells us, When he was strong, his heart was lifted up, or he became proud, to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. You see, Uzziah became proud. He was no longer content to be king, and so he also wanted to be priest. He wanted to offer the incense on the altar. Remember, under God's law, there was a strict separation between church and state. The king was never supposed to be priest. The king was king, the priest was priest, but Uzziah considered himself above God's law, and he wanted to be both. In the colonial days of America, there was a great debate among those early colonists. The British loyalists, they spoke of rex lex. In other words, the king is law. The patriots, those revolutionaries, they spoke of lex rex. The law is king. Well, which is it? Is the king the law or is the law the king? Well, God weighs in on the subject in verse 5. Then the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death. And so he dwelt in an isolated house. I think God made his point. Uriah lived the rest of his life under quarantine. He became a victim of that dreaded disease of leprosy. Because of his pride, he ended up being neither priest nor king. Evidently, as far as God is concerned, his law always trumps the king. We're told in Jotham, the king's son was over the royal house, judging the people of the land. His son had to take over the royal duties from a rebellious dad. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah or Uzziah, And all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Azariah rested with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. Now verses 8 through 31 document the chaos that was occurring in the northern kingdom while Uzziah was on the throne in Judah. Tragically, but expectedly, Israel's final days were marked by treachery, by murder, by treason, by anarchy, by assassination. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in the capital city, Samaria, six months. All he lasted was six months, half a year. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck and killed him in front of the people, and he reigned in his place. Now Jeroboam II's successor, in a public place, in front of the people, there was no shame. Now the rest of the acts of Zechariah, indeed they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. This was the word of the Lord which he spoke to Jehu, saying, Your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation, and so it was. You remember back in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30, God had promised Jehu, because he had been faithful to judge the house of Ahab, that his heir would sit on the throne of Israel until the fourth generation. And now Zechariah is the fourth generation from Jehu, and thus the final king of Jehu's dynasty. Well, verse 13 tells us, of Zechariah's assassination. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned a full month in Samaria. This guy manages to sit on the throne a total of 30 days. Obviously, he didn't come to power with a groundswell of support. For Menachem, the son of Gadai, went up to Tizra, 
came to Samaria and struck Shalom, the son of Jabesh in Samaria, and killed him, and he reigned in his place. These kings of Israel are toppling like dominoes. Israel is going through monarchs like the University of Alabama goes through football coaches, one after the other. Actually, Josephus said that Shalom was supposedly Zechariah's friend. Thus, he was betrayed by his friend. This Menachem was his general. And so when Menachem heard of Shalom's treachery, it took him 30 days to get the news, he came to Samaria to take vengeance. And Menachem killed Shalom and took the throne for himself. Now the rest of the acts of Shalom and the conspiracy which he led, indeed are they written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. Then from Terza, Menachem attacked Tipsah and all who were there in its territory because they did not surrender. Therefore he attacked it. And all the women there who were with child, he ripped open. Obviously, this Menachem was not a nice guy. He was a military general by trade. And thus, he was short on diplomacy, prone to violence and vindictiveness. This is a horrible act that he committed on the citizens of this town. Now, in the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menachem, the son of Gadai, became king over Israel and reigned ten years in Samaria. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. And it was in the reign of this king, Menachem, this man known for his violence, this man who ripped open the wounds of the pregnant women and killed the babies, this horrible, terrible, brutal ruler. It was in the days of his reign that suddenly the most ruthless people in history appear on the scene. Pul, king of Assyria, came against the land. The Assyrian army turned savagery and butchery into an art form. There have never been a more vile and violent people than the Assyrians. They made this Menachem seem gentle. This pull was also known by the secular historians as Tiglath Pelelezer III. One historian calls him one of the most successful military commanders in world history, conquering most of the world known to the ancient Assyrians. It's interesting, this is the first mention in the scriptures of the Assyrians, which is strange since they have now been a world power for some 150 years at this point in history. Some believe their absence as a threat to Israel was the result of something we hear about and study about all the time, the story of Jonah. Jonah's ministry to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. You remember Jonah's time in the belly of the great fish convinced him that it was time to heed the call of God. God told him to call to Nineveh. He went to Tarshish, which is in the opposite direction. God said, go left. Jonah went right. And of course, God intercepted him. He was thrown off the ship and a fish swallowed him. And Jonah had a chance to chew on this for a few days. Until finally God caused the, the fish to spit him up on the beach, and he made his way to Nineveh, and there he preached. Jonah journeyed to this Gentile city, and boy, did Jonah hate the Assyrians. He hated these Gentiles. Nevertheless, he obeyed God, and he preached a message of repentance. And to Jonah's surprise, I might add, even his dismay, Nineveh heard his message and repented of their sin. They turned away from their idols and they turned to the one true God, the God of Israel. And it could be that the next few Assyrian leaders were reluctant to invade Israel because of their remembrance of Jonah's ministry. This pool, though, obviously has forgotten Jonah, for he shows no such inhibition. He attacks the northern kingdom. And Menachem gave Pool a thousand talents of silver that his hand might be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his control. In other words, he pays a ransom. He tries to buy off this army. And he gets his money by taxing the people. Menachem exacted the money from Israel from all the very wealthy, from each man 50 shekels of silver to give to the king of Assyria, 
So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. But Israel has not seen the last of the Assyrians and of Tegloth-Pelelazir. Now the rest of the acts of Menachem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Menachem rested with his fathers. Then Pekahiah, his son, reigned in his place. Verse 23. In the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menachem, became king over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned two years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Then Pekah, the son of Remaliah, an officer of his, conspired against him and killed him in Samaria in the citadel of the king's house, along with Argob and Ariah, his accomplices. And with him were 50 men of Gilead. He killed him and reigned in his place. It's dangerous to be the king of Israel. Everybody's trying to knock off the king. Now the rest of the acts of Pekahiah and all that he did, indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel in the 52nd and final year of Azariah, or Uzziah, king of Judah. Pekah, the son of Remaliah, became king over Israel and Samaria. And he reigned 20 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who he had made Israel sin. And how many times will we read this about the sin of Jeroboam? 19 times, in fact. We read, he made Israel sin. You remember, Jeroboam was the first of Israel's kings. And this man left a sad legacy that Israel was never able to overcome. You, you remember what his sin was. Jeroboam's sin was a subtle form of idolatry. You see, he didn't want his people going down to Jerusalem to the temple to worship there. If they did, he felt like that they would gravitate back to Judah and therefore you know, they wouldn't remain in his northern kingdom that he had broken off from Judah. And so he came up with an alternative religion. He erected golden calves in Dan and in Bethel. And understand... In his mind, these were not replacements for God. These were representations of God. Perhaps they were the living creatures in, in uh, heaven. They were a form of idolatry. They were graven images. They were representations of God. In essence, the sin of Jeroboam was not so much a violation of the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods. It was a violation of the second commandment, that you can't worship God through carved or graven images. The problem, though, is that a violation of the second commandment most often will lead to a violation of the first. Jeroboam, he worshipped God, but not in the way that God desired to be worshipped. Jeroboam's religion was his own invention, one that was convenient, but one that was not faithful. And sadly, all 19 of his predecessors, or 18 of his predecessors, they followed in his footsteps, they promoted the sin of Jeroboam. And in the end, the corrupt worship of Jeroboam was the primary reason that God judged the northern kingdom of Israel. What's the lesson for us? Let's make sure we worship God in the way He wants to be worshipped, not just in the way that's convenient for us. Let's make sure that our worship obeys God, not just appeases me. Well, verse 29 tells us, In the days of Pekah, King of Israel, Tiglath-Pelelazir, king of Assyria, came and took Yeon, Abel-Bethmaka, Genoa, Kiddush, Hazar, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. The Assyrians attacked the border towns, and they took their inhabitants prisoner, and it was the beginning of the end for this northern kingdom of Israel." Then Hoshea, the son of Elah, led a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and struck him and killed him. So he reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. Hoshea will reign nine more years, but he is the last of Israel's kings. Now in Judah... 
The death of Uzziah was followed by the reign of his son, Jotham. Jotham, too, was a good and godly king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. But notice the reoccurring problem for Jotham. 2 Kings 15 verse 35 reads, However, the high places were not removed. And this is the omission that eventually bites Judah and this king Jotham. The rest of the chapter takes us south to the reign of Jotham, Uzziah's successor, verse 32. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, became king, or began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha. And on Mother's Day, it isn't great to see these mothers mentioned here in the Scriptures. The daughter of Zadok, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. All these other guys who were evil, their mothers never get mentioned. <laughs> Apparently they, they weren't doing a very good job. But the good kings, they get their mothers mentioned. However, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places he built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. These high places were altars where idolatry could be practiced. Not necessarily where it was practiced, but where it could be practiced. You see, God centralized worship among his people. Everyone was required to worship at the temple. This is why the sin of Jeroboam was so diabolical because Jeroboam refused to let the people of the north go south to worship at the temple. He kept them within their confines and invented this false religion for them. But God's plan was for everyone to go to Jerusalem and to worship together. You were not supposed to erect your own altar or your own high place, an elevated platform that would perhaps hold an idol. These were outlawed. Worship was to remain pure. And yet, even when the Jews went to the temple, they still liked to hold on to their high places, their little private altars. They didn't bow to the idol necessarily, but for some reason, they always liked to polish the idol's pedestal. And I think there's an equivalent in our lives. It happens suddenly. Though I promise God that I'm going to serve Him, Though I promise God he's the only one to whom I'm going to give my life and my allegiance. Nevertheless, I tend to want to leave some options open. Oh, I want to follow God. But, but I don't necessarily want to burn my contacts with the world. I don't want to cut off my supply lines to sin. I want to kind of keep sin within reach. Just in case I want to go back at some point. In other words, I've taken down my idol but oh my, I'm still maintaining my pedestal. I've gotten rid of the idols, but I still am holding on to the high places. It's a sin that eventually leads to compromise. And that's why God says, get rid of the high places. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In those days, the Lord began to send reason king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah. So Jotham rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. Then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. Chapter 16. Now in the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. You see, his father's high places yielded to his full-blown idolatry. Ahaz forsook Jehovah God, and he worshiped Molech, the king of the Moabites. And one of the practices, you remember, of the worship of Molech was the sacrifice of their children. Child sacrifice 
was a big part of it. Making your sons pass through the fire. You see, Moloch was a hollowed out statue, a statue of brass, and they would stoke it with fire. And the arms of the statue would be held out like this, and they would lay their babies into the arms of Moloch, and they would literally burn to death as they were worshiping and chanting and all to Molech. These were the sins, remember, for which God judged the Canaanites, the original possessors of the land. And now Israel is proving that, that she has stooped just as low as those Canaanites. And now Israel is being judged. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Again, notice, one generation's compromise morphs into the second generation's outright idolatry. Be careful what you tolerate. Your little compromises are permission for your child to travel the same path, yet your child will always go further. Your social drinking could become your teenager's excuse to go off on a binge. I'm just saying... Whatever path you travel down, expect your teenager to travel that same path, yet go further. Verse 5. Then Rezan, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war. King Ahaz's two northern neighbors team up to pick on Judah. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. At that time, Rezan, king of Syria, captured Eloth for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Eloth. Then the Edomites went to Eloth and dwelt there to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pelelazir, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who will rise up against me. Now this was a terrible mistake. Rather than trust the Lord, Ahaz buys the Assyrians' protection. Between Judah and the Assyrians are two other kingdoms, Israel and Syria. These two kingdoms are now picking on Judah. And so what does Judah do? King Ahaz sends word to Tiglath-Pelelazir, won't you come and help me? Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. What an insult to God. Not only does Ahaz refuse to trust the Lord, he buys the Assyrian protection with treasures that have been dedicated to God. It was like pouring salt in a wound. And so the king of Assyria heeded him for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus, which was the capital of Syria, and took it, carried its people captive to Kerr, and killed Reason. Now I'm sure Ahaz loved the initial results. The capital of Syria, Damascus, fell to the Assyrians in 732 B.C. But understand, this was like inviting a serial killer into your house to protect you from your neighbor. It was. It's only a matter of time before he turns on you next. At first, Assyria fights for Judah. By the time we get to chapter 18, Assyria is fighting against Judah. Verse 10. Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pelelazir, king of Assyria. And he saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz went to Uriah, the priest, sent to Uriah the priest the design of the altar in its pattern according to all its workmanship. Then Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz came from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. And so he burned his burnt offering and his grain offering, and he poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. He also brought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord, from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. Now it's unclear as to whether Ahaz did all this in the name of the Assyrian gods, or whether he just worshipped Jehovah God in Assyrian style. You know, he just kind of created this Assyrian-like altar that kind of reflected this wonderful altar he had seen there in Damascus. But I think 
There's a parallel here. Here, here Ahaz worships Jehovah in Assyrian style. And how much worship goes on in the church today, how much of it is being done in the style of the world? This is what some Christians have done by merging some pagan practices in with Christian living. I'm weary today of, of what's being called relaxation techniques. Things like yoga and visualization and chanting your mantra. You know, these go by relaxation, but in reality, these are forms of Eastern mysticism. Today, yoga has become a fashionable form of exercise. Even some churches have jumped on the bandwagon, somehow ignoring that the ancient practice of yoga is inextricably linked to Hinduism. The term Christian yoga is an oxymoron. I read of one group that calls itself Yahweh Yoga. They've got chapters in different Christian churches. That sounds like a name coined by King Ahaz. You see, Ahaz Assyrianized his altar. He sort of jabbed, jazzed it up with pagan elements. He adopted the values and the forms of the Assyrian worship to make his altar more fashionable. Oh, people will be able to relate to this. I'm afraid that's what's happening in many quarters of the church. If you want to exercise, if you want to stretch, if you want to pray while you're doing it, go for it, fine. But you certainly shouldn't employ yoga. I believe this whole idea of Christian yoga is certainly a stretch. <laughs> Any amalgamation of Christianity and paganism is certainly an affront to God. Well, verse 15 tells us, Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, on the great new altar, burn the morning burnt offering, the evening grain offering, the king's burnt offering and his grain offering, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering and their drink offerings, and sprinkle it all, all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice, and the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. In other words, to seek God's will. He'd go back to the original altar to seek God's will. This other altar, though, this would be... Great, this would get the people in, you know. They'd all be excited about this Assyrianized altar. Well, thus did Uriah the priest according to all that King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the panels of the carts and removed the labors from them. And he took down the sea from the bronze oxen that were under it, and he put it on pavement stones. He, he makes all these alterations to the temple there in Jerusalem. And also he removed the Sabbath pavilion which they had built in the temple. And he removed the king's outer entrance from the house of the Lord on account of the king of Assyria. Ahaz tailored the temple to conform to Assyrian tastes. King Ahaz wanted to please the Assyrians more than he wanted to please God. And now the rest of the acts of Ahaz which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And so Ahaz rested with his fathers, of course another name, Another way of saying he died and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Now chapter 17 records the siege and fall of Israel and her capital city, Samaria. Here's a name for you. Shalmanazar V. This is the son of Pul or Teglath-Pelelazir. He's now king of Assyria, and he is the commander of the Assyrian army. Haley's Bible handbook comments on Nineveh's army. Listen to this. The Assyrians were great warriors. Most nations then were robber nations. The Assyrians seem to have been about the worst of them all. They built their state on the loot of other peoples. They practiced cruelty. They skinned their prisoners alive or cut off their hands, feet, noses, ears, or put out their eyes, or pulled out their tongues, and made mounds of human skulls, all to inspire terror. When they conquered a city, they would pile skulls out in front of the gate just to intimidate the crowds that might pass by. These vicious people besieged Samaria for three years, sucking the very life out of her until the city was finally destroyed. But chapter 17 makes it clear that the fall of the northern kingdom was not the result of Assyrian might, nor was it the result of Israel's military weakness. 
In Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, God refers to the Assyrians as the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. You see, the Assyrians were a tool of God's judgment. Verse 1. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Shalmanazir, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. And the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. Siege warfare was an ancient art of battle. You cut off a city's supply lines. You waited until they either starved to death or they surrendered. This final attack was brought on by Hoshea's conspiracy. He tried to recruit the Egyptians' help. Well, in the ninth year of Hoshea, 722, the infamous secular date, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and by the Habar, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. You see, the Assyrian policy toward conquered people was one of displacement. Later we'll see that the Babylonians, they would take their enemy back to Babel, back to Babylon with them. But the Assyrians, they would scatter their defeated foes into other parts of the empire. We're told, for so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord has cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. Their crimes were quite clear. The northern tribes had sinned against God and had followed pagan practices. Also, the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. And they built for themselves high places in all their cities, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. Some of these wooden images were phallic symbols that were used in the worship of the Canaanite fertility goddesses. They were burned incense on all the high places like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. Israel literally became worse than the Canaanites who had preceded them, whom God had used for them to judge. They mimicked the sins of their predecessors. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all of his prophets, every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all that the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent you by my servants, the prophets. God sent prophets to warn them. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiffed their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. They grew stubborn. They refused to listen. And they rejected His statutes and His covenant that He had made with their fathers and His testimonies which He had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. So they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molded image and two calves, again the sin of Jeroboam, made a wooden image and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft and soothsaying, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke Him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from His sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. The northern kingdom was taken captive and dispersed. The southern kingdom of Judah was all that remained. 
And also Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel, which they made. Because of Judah's eight good kings, God still had hope for Judah. And Judah is given another 120 years to repent. The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them, and delivered them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them from his sight. For he tore Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. Once again, a reference to the sin of Jeroboam. This was a big deal in the sight of God. God desires to be worshipped in a prescribed and in a specific manner. He doesn't leave it up to us to decide how to worship Him. As if we can tailor that worship to our own tastes. As if we can worship Him in ways that are convenient for us. No, God wants to be worshipped in the way He desires. Not just in the way that's easy for us. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is to this day. Because of Israel's persistent sin, Samaria fell, and these northern ten tribes were scattered among the nations. You know, I learned this early in my marriage. That Kathy didn't want me to love her in the way that was convenient for me. She wanted me to love her in the way that she desired and needed to be loved. And if you truly love someone, you'll do that. You know, you'll find out what they need. And you'll seek to love them in that manner. And God expects the same if you truly love God. You won't just love him in name only. You won't just love him in, in ways that are easy for you. You'll love him in the way that he desires, in the way that his word has prescribed. Well, these folks, they worshiped the golden calves of Jeroboam for their entire history. They sunk into Baal worship at times. Other forms of idolatry, the worship of Molech. And though God was faithful to warn them over and over, they stubbornly rejected the prophets. Verse 24, Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Zarephaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. Again, the Assyrian strategy with the people they conquered was displacement. They took the natives of one land and they resettled them in another territory that they had conquered. This meant while the Assyrians were deporting Hebrews from Israel, they were importing defeated foes from other lands that, that they, had, uh, they had defeated. And these Gentile immigrants into the land intermarried the Hebrews that were left behind and they became a race of people known as the Samaritans. We'll get to that a little bit later. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them which killed some of them. And so they spoke to the king of Assyria saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them and indeed they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Now even their officials were bright enough to recognize that these lions were a divine judgment. And so the king of Assyria commanded saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there and let him teach rules of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But sadly, any priest from the northern kingdom would not have been a godly priest. He would have been a priest of Jeroboam. He would have been the priest of one of these holy cows. So whatever the priest told you, it'd really just be a bunch of bull. No matter how moving his presentation was. I'm going to try to milk this one for all I can. However, every nation 
continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities where they dwelt, the men of Babylon made Succoth-Benoth, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamoth made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Seraphites burned their children in fire to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Seraphim. And so they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. Now isn't that strange? They feared the Lord, but they served other gods. It seems that these people learned about the true God, but they failed to embrace Him as the only God. And thus they added Jehovah to their list of gods that they had brought with Him. To them, God was just another God. God, the God of that land. Well, to this day, they continue practicing the former rituals that they do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them, but the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm, Him you shall fear, Him you shall worship, and to Him you shall offer sacrifice. A strange religion developed in Samaria. God was worshipped in name only, but other gods were incorporated into that worship. It was a corrupted form of Judaism. It was a Judaism laced with pagan belief. It was the religion of the Samaritans. And the statutes, the ordinances, the law, and the commandment which God wrote for you, you shall be careful to observe forever. You shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods, but the Lord your God you shall fear, and He will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. Evidently, the Jewish covenant was offered to these people. They had married Hebrews. They could live as Hebrews if they chose. However, they did not obey but they followed their former rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images. Also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did, even to this day. Of course, these people were known as the Samaritans. Now, unlike the northern kingdom, Israel, unlike the northern kingdom of Israel, who was scattered among the nations, the southern kingdom of Judah will eventually be judged and will be taken back to Babylon as exiles. Eventually, Judah is allowed to return to the land. And of course, you remember the story? Nehemiah will come. The first Zerubbabel will come. Nehemiah will come. Ezra will come. And they will help the people rebuild the city of Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, reestablish the worship of God in the land of Israel. But when Nehemiah comes, guess who tries to thwart him? A guy named Samballot, guy named Tobiah. But do you remember who they were? They were Samaritans. They were these people. These people will become the obstacle, the barrier, when the Jews return after their exile in Babylon. These Samaritans were a mixed race, part Hebrew, part Gentile. They were a people who worshipped Jehovah in name, but who never fully embraced the law of Moses. And they became the hated enemies of the Jews. So that when the Jews get reestablished in the land, it's the Jews against the Samaritans. And it becomes a heated and hated rivalry. This is why when Jesus told the parable of the Jewish priest who passed the man that was, had been robbed and put on the side of the road. And the priest passed by, the Levite passed by. They didn't have time for the man, but a Samaritan, he passed by. And he took the man to the inn and he nursed him and paid for his bandages and, and put him on a road to recovery. How that this man was more righteous than that Jewish priest and that Levite. Oh my. Can you imagine how the Jews who heard that story reacted? A Samaritan? What do you mean a good Samaritan? There's no such thing. 
Jesus was pointing out, though, that the man had love in his heart. Because of it, he was more righteous than those religious men who lacked love and lacked compassion. When we get to the New Testament, the Samaritans play a pivotal role in the life of Jesus. Our Lord, remember, showed mercy on a Samaritan village. He blessed a Samaritan woman with the gift of living water in John chapter 4. Soul-satisfying water. His spirit that could quench their thirst. Did you know there's still a small group of Samaritans in existence today? They still live in the hills of Samaria. Practice their religion on occasion. Now, the question always arises. What happened to the northern kingdom and to the ten tribes that occupied the northern kingdom that were then scattered throughout the world by the Assyrians. Israel's famous ten lost tribes. Well, let me say that wild, fanciful theories have developed around this question. Herbert W. Armstrong founded a cult by the name of the Worldwide Church of God claiming that his followers were the ten lost tribes of Israel. Some people have suggested that the ten lost tribes eventually settled in England. Therefore, all the, the members of the British Empire and even us Americans are descendants of the lost tribes. Other theories have suggested that Native American Indians were the ten lost tribes. Some have suggested the Kurds, the Greeks, the Irish, even the Japanese have been the object of a theory regarding the ten lost tribes. There's a group. As a matter of fact, when we were swimming at the Dead Sea the last time we were in Israel, there were a group of people there. They called themselves Black Hebrew Israelites. They believe that they are the descendants of the ten lost tribes. I believe they're all wrong. The Bible teaches that the ten tribes were scattered among the nations. I believe many of them lost their identities. We'll read later that a few of these members of the ten lost tribes, the most devout among them, they will migrate back to Jerusalem and they will join in and become integrated within the Jews in Jerusalem and they will worship God at the temple. You know, they become integrated into Judah. We do know that the descendants of the ten lost tribes, though they are lost to history, they are nevertheless known by God. How do we know that? Revelation chapter 7 says that in the last days, in the midst of that final seven-year tribulation period, God will choose 12,000 from each of Israel's 12 tribes to be His special witnesses in that day. Therefore, God must know who belongs to each of those tribes. And that shouldn't surprise us, for God certainly knows His people. 